kind of briefly broached the subject last, uh, last Sunday at the very end of class, but we're looking at the idea of now concerning spiritual gifts. Um, and we talked last week a little bit about uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding around the, this concept, and especially in the religious world today, there's a lot of... Uh, um, there's a lot of confusion, and there's 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 almost in, in my estimation there's been kind of a renewed interest maybe in this kind of charismatic uh, feeling that this, this this charismatic worship to, or, or teachings around spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit and, and how that works today and how you know do we have these gifts today? Um, you know, I, I can think of conversations I've had in the you know in in not too distant. Uh, Times where you know we we've been talking about you know well you know how do I receive spiritual gifts what uh, you know pe- people have asked are are the gifts of healing prophecy or tongues are those things that I see people doing on TV are those legitimate and if I don't receive them is there something wrong with me as a Christian or am I not faithful enough or you know the, these types of questions these are things that that I've I've had conversations with, with people about that that have, have asked these um, and. You know, there, there's some confusion around these things, and, and so th- this is a good topic for us to study. A good, um, and, and Paul answers a lot of these questions throughout these three chapters in, in 12 through 14. Um, in chapter 12, he's really going to teach them about the the, the diversity of, of spiritual gifts and the um, the how there's different spiritual gifts, and but they all come from the same source. He's going to talk about where they come from, what their purpose is, and he's, he, he starts that. He, he wants the, the Corinthian brethren not to be uninformed, so he starts that, that section by, uh, by that statement. In chapter 13, he describes them a more excellent way after he's talked about these nine spiritual gifts that he's, he's listed here. In, in chapter 12, he says there's a more excellent way, and that's love. And he reveals uh, in chapter 13, we, we see some, some information around perhaps the timing of these spiritual gifts and whether or not they are still in play today or when they would have been, uh, when they would have ended. And then in chapter 14, he provides some guidance for their use in the assembly and kind of some, some governing principles around how they were to use them um, with the overall principle being, let all things be done for building up. Um, or for edification. So that's what he's going to do in these three chapters, and we're going to, uh, to, to do a high-level overview here as we, as we go through. So in chapter 12, we see again the, the concept of now concerning spiritual gifts. Again, Paul signals that he's switching these topic, his topic and responding to something they asked. Um, and he says in the first three verses, he reminds them, uh, he, he, he says, do not be uninformed. He reminds them of their pagan background, of, where they, of, the, of the worship that they used to, to, to engage in. He said, you were led astray by mute idols. You were led astray, and, and, and you know, these mute idols, they can't talk. Their image is made of wood and stone, but you worship them, and you were led astray in that way. And, and he says, therefore, because you were led away like that, I need you to know this. I need you to be able to discern between two different things. And he's going to give them something that they are struggling about. Perhaps they ask the question about how how do we deal with this? But he's going to uh, say, because because remember your past, I need you to know, know these two things. No one who speaks in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Um. Is Paul saying here 
that it's physically impossible to say these words or to say these phrases? I, you know, it, I just did. I said, I read them. I, it, it, it's not a, a, a physical thing that you can't say these words if you're not in spirit or, or anything like that. But what he's saying here is you need to be able to discern between those who say they're from God and, and those who are actually speaking truth, who say they're from God, but maybe speaking things, denouncing Christ or Christ is a curse and things like that. And then versus those who actually speak the truth. If one is claiming to speak in the spirit of God, claiming they have a, a spiritual gift or claiming to be from, from God, um, then the things they're saying must come from the same source and be true. And so if they're saying Jesus is accursed and denouncing Christ, that, that's not the same source. That, and they need to be able to know the difference in that. And so it's only those who are saying Jesus is Lord that are truly in the spirit speaking from uh, speaking from that source. Then in verses 4 through 11, Paul explains that there is a diversity of gifts. He lists nine of them here in, the, in this section that they would be familiar with, but he emphasizes that they all come from the same source. All of these different gifts come from the same source. And, and the, the words he uses here to kind of contrast this concept are varieties versus the same. Or different, different versions, varieties, different, diversity, depending on, on your translation. But we've got these, this variety of nine different gifts and the different uh, miraculous abilities here. And they've been given to you by the same spirit. And so we see that phrasing multiple times here um, in, in these verses. Why, why does he do this? Why does he kind of approach this subject? We know last week, right at the at the end of our class, that um, and we'll see, continue to see. But the Corinthians, in a very Corinthian fashion, found a way to make these spiritual gifts a, a divisive point or a, a prideful point, where they put assign more value to uh, spiritual gifts such as speaking in tongues over a spiritual gift like say prophecy, and that, that's the example that Paul is going to to dive into later in chapter fourteen, but. We see that this, you know, it's just another area where they can be puffed up and arrogant over and that they're potentially causing division over and, is, and, and uh, another, you know, similar to chapter one, where we saw them assigning higher value and being puffed up over who taught them or who baptized them. Or, you know, uh, when we get to chapter 14, we're going to see that they're highly valuing the speaking in tongues over prophecy uh, as, as a lesser gift in their in their mindset. And so in doing this, they're losing the proper perspective, which is a shocker compared to the rest of the letter, right? We're not used to the Corinthians not having the right perspective. That's something we see over and over and over, but they're doing that here with the spiritual gifts. And they, you know, they, those who have certain gifts, they have a greater value and they are better than those without those gifts. And we're seeing this happen here with zero perspective on the purpose and the result of the gift itself. And so we learned some very important things about spiritual gifts here. Um, there are a variety of gifts. Paul lists nine of them uh, in verses 8 through 10. He says the utterance or word of wisdom, the utterance, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, the ability to d- distinguish or discern between spirits, various or different kinds of, of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Is that an exclusive list? Of spiritual gifts? 
No, this is nine of them, but we see, we see other spiritual gifts mentioned in, in the New Testament. This isn't an all-inclusive list of spiritual gifts here. Um, but but it's, it's, it's a representative of, of, of these, these gifts. And do, do we know what each one exactly means and how it was fully executed and what it exactly looked like to perform each of these? No, we, we weren't there, were we? Uh, you know, we could use some logic and context clues. And, you know, we, we've read about healing and read Jesus healing and things like that. We could maybe guess about how some of those things took place. But we weren't there. We don't really know how they all work together or, or you know, what, how each one was, was exercised. Um, but I think, you know, we, we do know from the book of Acts that the gift of the apostles that they received, um, it was to help them be a witness uh, of Jesus. It was they, these gifts were to help them be a witness and help them in their efforts as they go and, and spread the gospel. And we saw see multiple uh, examples of them using these gifts, you know, speaking on uh, on the day of Pentecost, the healing and in turn, many believe them as witnesses uh, based on on the these actions. Um, one of the things that reading through this list and kind of reading this entire section together, one of the things that came to my mind was, I think perhaps an argument could be made that when used all together, these were very uh, important and, and these gifts played a large role in helping to protect the early church from false doctrine and to help protect them from the, the false ideas, especially considering in light of verses one through three, where there are some who are claiming to be of the spirit and, and, and claiming to, to be of that, but they're cursing and denouncing Christ. So I think there's, you know, there's a couple different, different ways these all work together. In verse seven, we are given kind of the purpose for this though. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. These were to be beneficial for, for all. These were to be beneficial, uh, whether it was to protect them from false doctrines or to confirm the gospel. They were to be used together for the common good and uh, a single purpose. We, looked, we already saw they would have a single source. Uh, they, they came from the same place, uh, the same spirit. Uh, verses 4 through 6, we have a kind of a reference to, to the Godhead, the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. But all of that's the same source. Not, not, not one is better or, or worse than the other. And that's what he keeps reiterating over and over. Same spirit, same, same. Tongues didn't come from a greater source than prophecy. Uh, they also didn't come from multiple sources like the, 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 God, the sun god or the water god or other pagan gods that they might have followed. This all comes from the one same, single same source. And... and uh, everything was now unified under Christ. And one of the other things we see here is how was it determined what gift each person received? Um, verse 11 tells us that all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So these spiritual gifts, they were, they were freely given by the spirit in whatever manner it, it, he decided to. And, and he apportioned them out according to his will. And through that, we see that, you know, the... These were gifts. They, they were not earned. They couldn't be purchased. We see an example of that in, in, in Acts, someone trying to do that. Having one of these gifts wasn't to be a source of pride that they earned it. They were so much better because they had one gift versus the other gift. But instead, it was all from God. And I would, I would venture to say every, it was to be to the glory of God, according to other, the other statements Paul has made. And it wasn't to be made about themselves. 
I would also suggest uh, verse 18 and verse 24 here might uh, play a part in this who determined where verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them. Verse 24, God uh, has so composed the body. And so God, through the Holy Spirit here, portioning out these, these gifts in whatever way he wills, he was doing it intentionally. He composed the body. He arranged the body the way he wanted it to, to be. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians of this is like in other areas, they become prideful, infantile in their thinking over this and, and not, uh, not with the proper perspective. And so he is bringing them back to this is why you have these gifts. This is why they're here. This is where they came from. And this is how are they to be how they are to be used. Um, in the second half of the chapter, he gives a great illustration of how they should view these gifts and how they should view each other. Um, as they work together in the church, this diversity of gifts, that's a good thing. That's the way God designed it and, and, and the way it's intended to be. It's needed for the body of Christ to work together. And so we have uh, in the last half of this chapter, this illustration Paul uses of the human body and its many individual parts compared to the body of Christ, the church and its many individual members. And so we have this, this uh, comparison here. Um, and it's not a new illustration from Paul, right? We've seen this other places. Romans 12, we see a, a very, very similar illustration here uh, of, of, the, the, of the body and its parts. Um, chapter 10, we've already, Paul, uh, Paul referred to the one body uh, when, when he talked about what it meant to partake in, in communion, being part of that one body. And Ephesians 5, uh, 23, Colossians 1, 24, Paul directly links the idea of the body of Christ to as being the church. And so we see here that he that this is not an unfamiliar concept or a phrase that that Paul uses. And he's used this example other places. And there's a couple points that I'd like to make from this illustration. Um, and, and the first one is really. And they're, they're pretty basic points. But no members can say that they are more important or not important because of the gifts they do or do not have. Uh, that's the first point I think we can pull from this illustration. Um, and that's really the point we see being made in verses 14 through 20 that... You know, a foot can't say, well, since I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Or since I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. No member can say that they are more important or not important. And instead, know that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And I think that this is a really encouraging point and something that we all need to keep in mind when we think about the body of Christ and being individual members of it. You know, when we're feeling down because we don't have the, the talent that someone else has or we can't do something else someone else can do, or maybe when we're feeling up like, oh, look at me, I can, I can do this, and someone else is not, not as good at that, we, we need to remember that God arranged the church. And it's not us to say, well, well I'm better or not as good because of what I can and can't do. Uh, he... God arranged the church. He added you to the body and added us exactly where we needed to be. And so we see that point being made here by Paul. And if we were all as good as another person, if we all did the same thing in the same way, what kind of body would that be? A body full of eyes. What, that, that wouldn't be a very functional body without the other 
supporting parts, right? Or uh, a, a body just, just, with, just with hands or just with feet. So, so we see that we're not to, to say that, that we are more important and not important. The second point is similar, but we're not to say that others are more important or not, uh, not as important. And so we see these two different concepts within the same illustration, looking inward to ourselves, but looking at others. Because the, the example he gives in verses 21 through 24, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. But instead, Paul makes the, uh, makes the, the statement, it's those parts of the body that are weaker that are indispensable. Those parts of the body uh, have honor as well. And so we see this, this point being illustrated. And we're familiar with, with that uh, illustration. God composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, um, so that there may be no division. And that's the, the third point here. The, 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 this is all... To, to prevent division, going back to kind of Paul's main theme throughout this letter, is if we have this idea that, that you know, nobody is better than another because of the gift they have, or the talent they have, or the value that they bring, that's going to help create unity and prevent this division. And here in Corinth, they, they did not have that same care for one another that Paul describes here. We, and we've seen it. They're lifting some select members above others. They're considering some before others and partaking the Lord's Supper. Um, they're considering some before others in regards to whether they were married, single, eating meat, not eating meat, on and on. Every example we can see where they were either putting themselves above others or they were lifting others or putting others down. And we see this example. But instead, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That is a picture of a unified, loving church that Paul paints. And something that the Corinthians needed to, to attain to. And something I think we need to challenge ourselves to make sure we are following that pattern, pattern as well. So Paul ends chapter 12 with the encouragement to desire the higher gifts. And he says, it's, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with desiring one gift or another. But I think that statement is in view when the proper view of these gifts, not in just the gift that makes me feel best. Like if I can speak in tongues, that's the best gift. And I want to desire that because that's what makes me feel better. And that's what I, I value. But no, in the desiring the gifts that help them create a more unified body, that help the common good, desire those gifts. And even beyond that, Paul says there's a more excellent way that Paul will show them something greater than the spiritual gifts they hold in high regard. I'm going to pause there for a brief minute. Any, any thoughts on chapter 12 before we, we're going to ch- cover chapter 13 and 14 back to back here in just a second? John. Yes, I think you've covered it well. I think uh, verse 7 is the, is the critical verse in that chapter that these gifts were to be used for the common good. It seems we know that Paul had been in Corinth a year and a half initially, but it seems like they completely missed the point that to be a disciple of Christ is about being a humble servant willing to sacrifice for others. How did they miss it? But if they could just learn verse 7, that will fix the problem with the gifts, it will fix the problem with the Lord's Supper, it will fix the problem with taking one another to court, who baptized who, it'll fix all of those problems. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 said we should consider other more important than self. And so they had a big problem with the me syndrome. It's all about me, and really it shouldn't be. It's about others. And so as you close it out, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Why? 
so you can help others yep. for the common good. Absolutely. Thank you. Chris, over here. I realize we have a lot of territory to cover. Um, the, uh, the, the gifts that are described here, um, and I apologize if I missed this earlier, but uh, do, we, do we think that all of these, uh, that none of these survived today? Well, I would, I would venture where in, in chapter 13, we're going to see what, what was partial and perfect in that. And, I, and, and in my view, I, I think that we, we don't see these gifts today in, in the miraculous form, right? I mean, we can see we have faith and we have, you know, the ability to pray and things like that. But in the miraculous form here, I don't know that they have survived and considering the rest of the things that Paul says here. Cool. Anyone, anyone have any other, anything different than that? Yeah. I was just going to say, I think, uh, you know, the, the idea of, you know, the factions being created based on these spiritual gifts, we, you know, again, we're going to get into that, but we don't really see that today uh, from that perspective. But what we do see is uh, congregations in the world that faction themselves out to different things, uh, to focus on different things. So, for instance, you know, what's your praise group doing? Um, what is your worship group doing? What is your young adult outreach program doing? And so we do see in the world today where they are splitting themselves up, dividing themselves up and saying, you know, well, this group over here has a really great praise group and this group has a really great worship group. And, and you know, that is not in line with the teachings that we see here. It's, it's we are one body and we are doing all those things together. Yep, absolutely. One body working together for the common good. Thank you. Um, all right, so we're going to jump into chapter 13, and we're going to uh, do this back-to-back, -back, chapter 13 and 14, and hopefully we'll have some time at the end for, for a couple comments. But uh, chapter 13 here, in the middle of this discussion on spiritual gifts, Paul describes uh, the more excellent way that he just got done talking about in chapter 12, um, uh, this, this love. And it's a very short but a powerful chapter here, and there's a lot of a lot that we could we could spend a very long time in this chapter itself. But we're going to do a very uh, brief overview here. Um, but what Paul does is first he emphasizes the importance of love in the first three verses, the, the importance of love. And I think you could summarize these three verses with the idea: if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm vain. If if the things I do aren't done out of motive, aren't done out of a motivation of love. It, it, it's worthless. I, it, it has no value. Um, and so Paul emphasizes this importance by comparing love to these three different uh, things that the Corinthian brethren placed great value on. And so we see he compared it to speaking in tongues. If I speak in tongues but don't have love, I'm just a noisy uh, gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, if I have all the faith, if I don't have love, all of that, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then if uh, I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And these are powerful statements. These, these are, this is a powerful uh, comparison here and would be very opposite of the way the Corinthians looked at this uh, as, they, as they approach the, the, this idea. 
you know, Corinthians, if I can speak in tongues, I'm, I'm, the, I'm very impressive. I, I've, got, I've got the best qualities. It's, you know, people, people like hearing tongues. That's, that's a great thing. If I can prophesy, if I have great faith, uh, you know, if I can sacrifice my life, uh, give away all my possessions, those are the best things I can do. And, but what Paul is saying here, without love, all that is meaningless. All that is vain. All that is worthless. Um, and, and so we see the importance of love here above, uh, he's making the argument, love is a more excellent way compared to the other, uh, the other things. So what is love? Paul defines love in verses 4 through 8, and he gives us a very detailed definition with, with uh, several, I believe it's 14 different characteristics here uh, of love listed out. Uh, and in a more in-depth class with more time, we would spend time defining each of these terms and looking at the application of each one of these and how they all work together. But one of, there's a couple of things I think we can, we can see from this list, and, and I hope you can see the connection between all of these items here that are listed in, in these verses as being pretty much a solution, again, to kind of John's point where the common good, a solution to everything we've talked about this quarter already with, with Corinth. I can look at each one of these characteristics and tie it back to something we've already studied where this is a remedy of something the Corinthian brethren needed, a characteristic they needed to, to take on um, if they would apply these characteristics. And, and so we see this list and we see, I kind of broke it up in, in what does love do, the positive, and what does love not do, the negative. And so the, in the positive side, love is patient, kind, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things, rejoices with truth. And what does it not do? It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it does not sit, insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it never ends. Now, before we touch that last point, that love never ends, looking at these other 14 characteristics, what makes this a more excellent way? If we look at this, and I'm sure we could all have different answers and a good discussion around that, one of the things that, that came, came to my mind as I was looking through this and what makes this potentially a more excellent way over than the items that he's listed here in the first couple of verses and, and the, the gifts he's talked about already is... Every single one of us can do everything up there today. We, with, with work, with intentionality, with dedication, we all can take on every single one of those characteristics. And we can put on love and, and put love to practice. It's not a miraculous gift we have to receive. It's not a mysterious thing that we, 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 we can't do on our own. But I think, in one sense, that is what makes love a more excellent way, is that it's open to everybody. Everybody can take on love. Everybody can put these to practice. And I think that's a challenge for us to do so. Um, and again, it's in line with the principles Paul has shared up, we've seen through Corinth so far. Don't be arrogant. Don't be rude. Don't insist in your own way. Don't rejoice at wrongdoings. All of these things we've seen throughout the letter so far. Um, so that, that's the definition we have. Of, uh, of love in verses 4 through 8. And then Paul gets to the permanency of love, uh, where love never ends, that last point. Well, what about prophecies? They're going to pass away. What about tongues? They will cease. What about knowledge? That, that will pass away. While other 
gifts of the Holy Spirit that will eventually cease and become worthless, love will always exist. And we see that contrast being made here. That is a more excellent way, seeking the thing with enduring and lasting value. Um, And then we get to this idea where there is, uh, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, we've got this idea of this contrast between partial and perfect. And uh, while there is still partial knowing, partial prophesying, uh, these gifts will be needed. You know, for uh, verse 9, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And, you know, when the perfect comes, the, these, the, the knowing, the prophesying, the, these gifts, they're, they're going to pass away as well. And that begs us to ask the question then, uh, the good question, has this happened yet? Do we know if this has happened yet or if these gifts are still necessary and needed and around today that we can, we can have in, in the way that we see? And I, this is a major sticking point with a lot of mainstream Christian, Christians that, that we see in, in, in the religious world. In fact, that completely unrelated, I read two days ago that Max Licato, a, a common author and, and religious uh, uh, preacher and author, he uh, just, just a few weeks ago posted that he recently received the gifts of, gift of tongues. And, and now that is something that he, he is able to do now for his, his congregation, his people just recently. And so he's making that, that claim. And so we see this is something that, that exists today that people are claiming to, to, to have and be able to do. But as always, we want to know, what does the Bible say? Well, here the Bible says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The, the knowledge, the prophesying, the tongues. Um, and we can look at passages we're familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In Jude 3, it says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So if we're looking at these three passages here in in, in the scriptures, this complete and perfect knowledge has been revealed. It's been confirmed. It's been given once for all. And... there's no more need for these spiritual gifts the way we, we see them here, and, and, and they, they've ceased. So Paul concludes verse, uh, chapter 13 here with verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three, what remain after spiritual gifts are gone. We have faith, we have hope, and we have love. That's what abides. Um, but he mentions that the greatest that we should attain is love. And I want to explore that ju- just a, a brief minute. Why? Faith and hope are good things, right? Faith and hope are good, good things. Why is love the greater of those things? Why is that the thing we should want to attain? Well, I would suggest that faith and hope are eventually going to go away too. Because once Jesus comes, once we see the things we have hope in, once we see the things that we have faith in, Faith and hope are going to go away, but love is still going to be there. Love is still going to be there. It will never end. As long as Christ is there and we are there with God, love is never going to end. And so we want to attain for love and we want to to work for that. So I'll leave chapter 13 there. There's a lot more we could say about that, but I want to make sure we have some time for chapter 14 here. 
Um, and so this is the outline we've got for chapter 14. Uh, he's going to dive deeper here into the, the, the idea of uh, the Corinthians, kind of their preoccupation with speaking in tongues. And he's going to make the case that uh, they should, while they should desire gifts, they should desire gifts like prophecy over tongues, or at least equal. Right? They, they should at least d- desire these other gifts like prophecy as well. And then he's going to spend some time specifically addressing how they use spiritual gifts when they come together and how they should conduct themselves when gathered together. And so we've got this breakdown, but I, I wanted to, just for sake of time, make four kind of observations from this chapter. And hopefully, we're not going to cover everything in this chapter, but hopefully that we'll cover a lot of, of what, what we see here by, by these principles. So... Um, the first one is just the, the word church. And I wanted to bring this out as a principle and a note here because we see it nine, uh, I believe it's nine times in this chapter. Um, nearly half the times it's used in the entire letter, church is used here in this chapter. Um, and uh, another small factoid, it appears 21 times in the entire book of 1 Corinthians, which is the second most times used in the entire New Testament. Acts is, is, is the highest um, and the first Corinthians uses uh, church, the, the second highest. So give that to you for free. But um, I wanted to spend just a minute looking at this idea and j- just really give some context or really just defining this idea. And it's not really new to many of us, but um, I, I think it does help with some of the context when we're reading through. So the word translated here, uh, the Greek word ekklesia, literally, literally we tr- it's translated called out from. And, and I was reminded of uh, the meeting Brother David Neal did when he was here a few years ago on, on the church and the definition he gave uh, of, of this word in, in one of his lessons. And, and his definition it is simply a group of people. And so we see it's a group of people from, from the definition he, he, he had there. And that's what we see here. The group of people I see being addressed here is the Christians in Corinth. And, and uh, specifically, this chapter is looking at when that group of people come together. And we see, uh, see that example at verse 23, the whole church comes together uh, is, is an example here. And it, I think it's the same usage and same concept we saw in, in chapter 11 as well. So we, we have that idea of coming together to worship and, and coming together as, as a body. Um, second observation and, and point I want to, to bring out from chapter 14 is notice the building up or the edification family of words here in this chapter. There's a lot of different descriptions for this term, building up uh, or edifying. Um, And we could go through, I think there's uh, at least minimum seven times here where this this idea, uh, verse 3, one who prophesies and speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consultation. Verse 4, building up of the church. Uh, Verse 5, so the church may build up. Verse 17, the other person is not being built up. So we see an inverse of of that idea. And and I think the key verse of this chapter to me is verse 26. When uh, it says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And so he's making this case uh, in the beginning where he's talking about prophecy and and speaking in tongues and how they're to be used to be building up. And there's ways that you can use, use tongues and not build up. And there are ways that you can use them to build up. And he says in verse 26, let all things be done for building up of uh, uh, for, for the building up. And so with that, 
I think a great emphasis is put up here on this idea of building up one another, building up the brethren, building up the church, um, this idea. And I think great care and intention needs to go into thinking through, uh, especially on the Corinthian side, it needs to go into thinking through how they're going to use these spiritual gifts. If you're going to use tongues, if you're going to seek that gift, you need to use it in a way that's going to build up your brethren, that's going to build up the church. And, 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 and encourage one another. And you need to think through whether or not speaking in tongue would be helpful in the situation you're in. Whether or not, based on the audience you have, whether that would be helpful. Whether or not there's an interpreter there. Those are all things that need to be considered. And if you're going to bring, uh, bring speaking in, in tongues into the, into the group, into the gather, gather, gathering of the, of the people. They needed to take great care not to speak over one another. If they're going to prophesy, if they're going to teach and do other things, they need to not speak over one another. We see this here. Um, and Paul emphasizes this idea of building one another up. I think this is one of the, one of the governing principles in how they are to use spiritual gifts. And I see we see kind of some guidance around how you use these gifts. Does it build up? And so building up uh, edifies... If building up and edifying was the governing principle, how what what builds up? What 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 do we see is the principle that guides them? What builds up in using the spiritual gift? I think here we see that the key thing is: are people able to understand what is being said? It, 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 I think people being able to understand what is being said. People being able to be benefited from the things that are being said, that's essential to building up the brethren. And we see that over and over. If someone comes in tongues and speaks in a foreign language and nobody else can understand it, that doesn't build anybody up. If two people are prophesying at the same time, talking over one another, that's not building people up. They can't understand that. And so when we go to the end of the chapter and we see the, the list, and we'll talk about it in just a second, when we see the, the kind of guidance of how they are to, to, be, to use these in their assembly, everything is done so that people can understand and people can be built up by those things. So... Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they, they, they've got to be learn. They've got to learn and be comforted. They'd be encouraged. And so there's that. So there's a piece of uh, there's a value to that. There's a knowledge that needs to be transferred. Something valuable needs to be said, and then there needs to be it needs to be understood. Um, I'll leave that point where it is. More to be said, but um, when to speak and when to be silent. We see this is another thing. Uh, another. Aspect another contrast of words that we see Paul using here several times, and he uses this to kind of govern how the uh, the assembly is to is to go and how they are to use the these gifts in the assembly. So, if you do a Google search for First Corinthians fourteen, one main topic is going to come up, and over and over and over, you're going to see the concept of can women speak in the Bible in church? Over and over, there's hundreds of articles, hundreds of ideas, and different different concepts. You're going to see that. And it comes from here in verse 34 through 35 specifically. It says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Sounds kind of harsh today uh, in, in today's culture. Reading through that, it kind of, ugh, I, you know, that, that's not familiar to, to us in, in our culture today. 
But I think looking at the context here, we can see that, that what Paul's saying isn't, isn't harsh at all. But again, it goes back to the idea of everybody needs to be built up. Everybody needs to understand. And it needs to go to this context of, of how the assembly should, should, should work and how these gifts that, that they have should be used. And so looking here, first I want to look at the idea of speaking. We see who, who Paul says can speak. It's not just one group of people being silent. We see, number one, who can, be, who can speak? So in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn. So those who speak in a tongue can speak. Uh, the, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh and judge, evaluate. In both of these situ- situations, we see them speaking, addressing the entire group. And then we, we go to uh, looking at who, can be si- who, who is to be silent. And, well, we look, well, those who speak in tongues... If there's no interpreter, they should keep silent in the church. Uh, they're told that they can speak to themselves and to God. I picture that as kind of a private prayer or, you know, however that, that's going to look. But they are to keep silent in the church. Uh, ver- verse 30, those who are prophesying, once a revelation is made to, to another sitting there, they should then be silent. And then verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches as well. And when looking at this way, I think we see that... He is teaching them to go through their assembly, their time together in a way that is not disruptive, but instead builds up the church. And he doesn't want people talking over one another. He doesn't want people saying things that are, that are not understandable. He doesn't want um, uh, the, the women, he, he doesn't want them uh, to, to add to that disruption by, by you know, stepping out of their submission or, or, or by, by speaking up, asking questions at inappropriate times. I think we can see here that everything he's doing is for the benefit of the, the group that they are to, to learn, to be encouraged, to build up. And, and all ending with the idea in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. So, so we see this, this, this thought process throughout, um, and I believe that was the last bell. I, unfortunately, there, there's way more to cover about that. We just kind of get, get into that. But hopefully that gives an idea of, of what, what is being covered can help guide your own study. The last point I'll give you uh, just, just to think about, and I don't have anything on this, just a question. Is the concept of spiritual gift use today that we see that people have, is that reflective of the use in the New Testament? And I, you know, things we see on TV, things that we see on, on social media, things that we hear people talk about, is their, is their thought process of how spiritual gifts are used today, are those things matching up to what we see and how they were used in the New Testament? And I'll leave that with you. Thank you so much. This is my last class, so thank you for all your participation in this quarter. I've really enjoyed this study. Uh, appreciate it.